Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guests. Today's podcast is going to be a bit different. Rather than talk about an issue in the news, we thought we would have a conversation about an idea. Although an idea that has a lot to do with what is going on in the political world today. That idea is democracy. Only a couple of decades ago, democracy seemed to be on the rise around the world. During the years following the end of the Cold War, mobilized citizens were casting aside authoritarian governments and replacing them with democratic ones. Democratic elections, human rights, rule of law, and citizen participation seemed in the futures of more and more people around the globe. Even where democracy had not yet taken hold, there was a consensus that democratic rule was preferable to authoritarianism. Democracy was the ideal for which all should strive. Today, democratic pessimism has replaced the optimism of a few years ago. Countries such as Russia, Turkey, Poland, and Hungary, seemingly on a democratic path at the end of the last century, have turned in an authoritarian direction. Democracy seems to be on shaky ground even in well-established democracies, including the United States in the Trump era. Not only is the practice of democracy at risk, the faith in democracy as an ideal has been eroding. Nowadays, for the first time in my lifetime, there are serious scholars writing books arguing that we should give up on rule by the people and rely instead on rule by more knowledgeable elites. Given these trends, I thought it would be worthwhile to take some time today to talk about democracy with someone who has thought deeply about the idea for a long time and can help us understand both the democratic ideal and why it is under threat today. To help us think through these issues, there is no one better than my colleague and friend, Professor Rick Battistoni. Rick has been thinking, studying, talking, and practicing democracy his whole professional career. He earned his PhD in the 1980s from Rutgers University, where he studied with the late renowned democratic theorist, Benjamin Barber. He joined the PC faculty in 1994 when he became director of the Feinstein Institute for Public Service and oversaw the inception of PC's program in public and community service studies. In addition to these duties, Rick has been a member of the political science faculty and teaches courses in political theory, including his popular course on democratic theory. Rick has published numerous articles and books on democracy, civic engagement, and service learning, and is in demand at colleges and universities across the country as a lecturer and consultant on how to educate students to be effective democratic citizens. He recently stepped down as Feinstein Institute director and has thus been able to devote more time in the political science department, a fact about which his political science colleagues are delighted. Rick, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation about democracy. Bill, thank you for inviting me. I'm uh, really glad to be here. Okay, to get us going, I think we ought to start with the definition. Uh, I know when I teach about democracy in my classes, students come in with kind of a fuzzy idea about what democracy really is. And I'm sure you have, have the same experience, particularly in democratic theory. How do you approach the issue of defining democracy in your democratic theory class? 
I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, in my class, students not only come in with fuzzy ideas, but they come in with assumptions. Assumptions that they have from popular culture, from their own experiences, um, from what they've heard uh, about democracy. And my first task, I think, is to surface those assumptions, to get them out on the table, to get them to rethink what they have thought before, to introduce what people have said about democracy over the ages, the rationales for um, people's power, for giving the people the power to rule, and then get them, by the end of the semester, to really theorize about democracy, to create their own democratic theory or anti-democratic theory if that's where they're leaning by the end of the semester. So, it, But it isn't an easy task because they come in not thinking really clearly or thinking in ways that they've been uh, conditioned to think over the years. So what do you think is the essentials of democracy? I've always been fond of Abraham Lincoln's statement, government of, by, and for the people which I think captures the notion that government by the people and for the people uh, so that the, the government is for serving the interests of all the people uh, in, in the country. Uh, what do you think about that definition? I think it's a great definition. Uh, Lincoln also said that uh, just as I wouldn't want to be a master to anybody, I wouldn't want to be mastered by anybody. So it's that kind of balance between being ruled over and ruling over in a kind of tyrannical way. I think that's great. I like the simple definition coming from the two parts of the, in, in Greek, the, you know, the demos, the people ruling or having power. The question then is, well, who are the people? Exactly. And what does it mean to rule? Yeah, and so let's talk about that first part. Who are the people? That's a complicated one, right? And in Athens, uh, the people were the citizens, which actually was a very small subset of the people living in Athens, right? There were slaves, there were women, of course, who were not citizens, uh, or at least were not allowed to participate. And then there were foreigners living in Athens who had no political rights. Uh, and so it was only the male uh, citizens of Athens who actually got to participate in the democracy. And, and that seems actually pretty typical, right? Almost all countries we call democracies exclude a lot of people from the ability to participate as democratic citizens. That's right, Bill. Uh, if we go back to our own founding and the people who were most forceful advocates of democracy, they didn't think that it included all of the people, not even all of the adult population. And so, yes, even the most participatory democracy um, has a great deal of exclusion. And, and I think that's one of the tensions, uh, who's included, who isn't. How do we determine whether a person should be included? Should it be based on birthright? Should it be based on location? Should it be based on some kind of status? Should it be based on who has an interest in the outcome of rule? That would be a little more inclusive, and, and there are theorists who've argued that as well. Right. I mean, there are actually people in the United States today who argue that non-citizens should be able to vote. Uh, and there are actually some local communities where that's where that happens, right? That's correct. Across the country. Yeah, and there are local communities where 16-year-olds are able to vote in local elections, right. whereas nationally that's not the case. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've heard an argument that there are people in other countries 
who have a clear interest in what happens in U.S. policy, particularly U.S. foreign policy. So why shouldn't people outside the United States vote? Right. And we have actually citizens living abroad can vote in American elections. And some of those people have lived abroad maybe their entire life. But as long as they're American citizens, they can participate in American elections. Yeah, the funny thing is that uh, our soldiers who are abroad and others who are living abroad often don't have an easy way to participate. And the way they participate is through a balloting process, absentee balloting, which may or may not get counted or not in a timely manner. So there are all questions about that as well. And I heard an interesting argument recently about expanding suffrage to younger people, to people uh, as, as young as 16 or maybe even younger. And I, th I was very intrigued by the argument. It's, it, the argument was a civic education argument, which would probably resonate with you, Rick, given your work in civic education. The idea was uh, people vote based upon habit. We as political scientists, we know that the most important determinant about whether or not somebody's going to vote in an election is if they voted in the previous election. Uh, and so allowing young people to vote as young as 16 would mean that most young people would start voting when they were still in high school, where you could have a structured educational program around the act of voting that wouldn't simply be a model exercise, but in fact would prepare them for an actual vote. And if they were voting before they leave high school, they would probably continue voting after that. I think it is a compelling argument. And my feeling is one of the things that I have found, especially in our college-age students, is that most have not had real experiences with democracy, either in their prior school experiences, they haven't voted because they weren't of age when they left high school or before they came to us, they don't experience it in civil society, maybe not in their churches, not in their um, organizations that they belong to and their families. And so without having an experience of democracy, they're making assumptions about what it is, and that's pretty difficult. And without that experience, they don't have the experiential base to go into deliberations, to go into different settings where they're being asked to rule with their fellow citizens, many of whom they may not agree with. And they don't necessarily have a commitment to the democratic ideal, right? We've Absolutely, seen yeah. recent polls where the percentage of young people in particular who say they don't think democracy is important or matters is pretty high. I can't recall the percentage. I think it's up to like a third or so. I've uh, seen surveys recently, both here and international surveys, where young people's commitment to democracy, where the percentage of young people who don't think democracy matters is around 30, 35 percent, yeah. Right. So the, the issue of who's the people is, is clearly a, a very difficult one in, in democracy. But let's talk about the other half of the definition. Uh, rule uh, by the people. So how do the people rule? What, what are some of the issues there we need to think about? Well, in Athens, if we have uh, the history right, those limited numbers of people who were citizens directly ruled. They made decisions about all kinds of things. And maybe more importantly, a lot of the offices in democratic Athens were assigned by lot. And so all citizens could be expected to rotate into any number of public service, public functions. That's what we do with juries now, in theory. Right, 
We right. do that in juries. But there that's are, not the only place. Well, then there are a few towns in New England where a history of direct democracy continues, yeah. maybe in an attenuated form. I, I live in a town that has a town financial meeting where all the citizens are invited to make decisions about the annual budget. So that's one way. I mean, so you can have direct ruling, but uh, given the scale of most of our political institutions, it, that's not realistic to think that all citizens can actually decide matters in the way the Athenians did or in the way that New England town meetings did. So what does rule constitute if you're not directly deciding on the matters that affect you? It's so the idea is then representative democracy, mm -hmm. which is the prevailing form nowadays. When That's we right. think about democracy, we think about representation, representation that occurs as a result of elections. But that, again, raises all kinds of problems. Right? It does, because if you're on the losing side of an election, uh, how do you ensure that your ideas and your interests are represented by the person who's elected by the other 50 plus one or more percent of the population, right? Right. right. Would raise the issue of majority rule. Right. Uh, Opponents of democracy or critics of democracy often criticize democracy because it's ruled by the majority, and that is seen as some kind of danger, that the majority is going to be tyrannical. That was the word the, some of the founding fathers used, right? right? So let's talk a little bit about that tension. If there's majority rule, what about the minority? How should the minority react to uh, the fact that they end up losing in a, let's assume, a fair democratic election. Does that minority then become excluded as a result of that election from democracy? Or are there ways of, in fact, uh, including them? Well, uh, that's a question, too, of what, at what level we're talking about democracy and the scale of democracy. So there are some built-in guarantees that even in a situation where the majority rules through a representative democracy, that those who aren't in the majority can still have a say, can still influence the outcome of decision-making. There's uh, freedom of expression, and so the minority can um, express themselves in a way that tries to advance their interests or their ideas about what policy should be. Uh, they can gather together and join groups that can lobby the ruling majority to make sure that their interests are represented. They can try to build up to be a majority for the next election. So there are a number of mechanisms that the minority can use. But in the end, I think it depends on the representation of the majority being willing to listen. So you can speak all you want, but if the majority isn't listening, you can be closed out. Right. So it seems to me that there's a couple of things that are going on there. Uh, one, we have this notion of certain fundamental rights the minority possesses even when they're not in the majority, like free speech, uh, ability to assemble, to petition government, I guess those primarily as First Amendment rights uh, in the American Constitution. Rights, by the way, that we often associate with liberalism. And I'd like to get into liberalism you know, down the road in, in our conversation, but for now, let's just acknowledge that there are certain you know, fundamental rights that would have to be recognized if you aren't going to have majority tyranny. So the minority could be able to engage politically, even though they're in the minority. Uh, the other thing it seems to me that is required would have to be some norms about how far the majority can go in their rule. Uh, that is, the majority can't rule in such a way that the minority is going to be excluded from the possibility of 
becoming the majority in the future, right? right. Uh, so you can't have a situation where a majority would uh, regard the minority as illegitimate. And that also requires a kind of mentality on the part of the minority as well. That is, when you lose an election, you don't uh, leave the polity. You don't say, okay, uh, this democracy isn't working for me, so I'm not going to play the democratic game anymore. Uh, and I'm maybe going to uh, form a guerrilla group and you know, resort to violence or simply secede or, or move away. So on both sides, in the majority and minority side, there has to be a kind of a norm that, that involves a commitment to the ongoing process, right? That's right. And the other thing that I think that protects the minority is um, our notion, at least in most liberal democracies and in our constitutional democracy, if you will, of limited government. And so the majority, even if it has what it thinks is a mandate, cannot do certain things. They can't rule on certain matters because they're limited by a constitution, by norms, by laws, from trampling on the interests or rights of the minority. So that involves a lot of architecture on top of this sort of simple rule by the people, right? We're talking about there's going to have to be a set of sort of constitutional laws and norms, certain rights that are protected, certain kinds of behavior. You know, thinking about that uh, and thinking about our democracy today, I'm kind of alarmed because we are in a political era where people demonize those on the other side. We have a, a president right now who characterizes the press as the enemies of people and denounces the other party as treasonous, uh, that's not good for democracy. Right? No, it isn't. And, and, I, and I'm taken back to the ancient rationale for democracy. I mean, the way I read Democratic Athens, the reason for democracy, that, that is rule of the people, was a feeling that all the people who were citizens had an equal capacity to govern. And that if you had all people with their different ideas and backgrounds and interests participating, you would have better policy. When you close out or demonize the opposition, you're saying that I have nothing to learn from you. I have nothing to gain from listening to your opinion because I either know everything or you're, you're an enemy of the people and therefore I don't need to listen to you. And, and I worry about that as well. I, I'm worried for all kinds of reasons about democracy, but we've lost that sense that by having people participate, we are having a more robust set of ideas that we can use to be a better polity, and we can set different policies that are better for us. Yeah, we have this phenomenon now of negative polarization where, where people are very partisan, but uh, what political scientists have found is that their partisanship is defined by their opposition to the other party. It's not because they like their party so much, but they fear and hate the other party. Uh, and that means that you aren't ever listening to the other party. Or you're also inclined, if that party wins an election and you lose, uh, to feel like you're completely cut out of the political system. And, and that, that certainly cannot be good over the long term for democratic rule, right? No, and it, and it can't be good for good policy because if you're focused on uh, the enemy, the other side, uh, and your your identity is defined by not being the other side. Then you're not you're playing defense. You're not really going on the offense to come up with new ideas or new solutions to really sticky problems that we have. Right. 
maybe it's a good time now to bring up this concept of liberalism. We often talk about liberal democracy. Uh, so let's unpack that a little bit. How would you define liberal democracy as opposed to other ways of maybe characterizing democracy? Well, I mean, in its original sense, in its classical sense, liberal democracy was based on the rationale that all of us as individuals have interests and a right to advance those interests. And we prefer democracy because it's a way of protecting ourselves and protecting our interests. And so democracy as a system is the best way we have as individuals to make sure that our interests are protected and advanced. Uh, and so it's really grounded in individualism and individual rights. But also what follows from that are these things like individual rights that can't be violated by the majority when they're in power. It also implies a certain kind of constitutionalism. Limited government. And, and li limited government. I'd like to talk a little bit about the limitations of that, but can we put that off a bit? I Before we do that, nowadays there are people who talk about illiberal democracy. Uh, in fact, the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, uh, publicly says in Hungary they have an illiberal democracy, which I guess means a democracy without those liberal safeguards of constitutionalism and, and the like. Uh, does that make any sense at all to talk about an illiberal democracy, do you think? To talk about it positively? <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm assuming that what he, he's advancing that as a positive notion. Right. I've heard people criticize democracy as being illiberal because you have majorities or, or a popular faction that is denying individuals who are in the minority their rights or people who know more their ability to make better policy. But to advance illiberal democracy as a positive, you know, in the modern era, in the modern sense, I don't understand that now. Yeah, it's dangerous. Or, or, and, and one wonders whether or not such a phenomenon exists. I mean, often it's people who are champions of liberal democracy who identify this phenomena, who say, well, this is horrible thing coming. Uh, and they seem to imply by the, their discussion of liberal democracy that this is a democracy that's too populist, that it's catering to the desires of the people and ignoring uh, sort of the wisdom of perhaps elites who might have more sway if there weren't this sort of populist uh, wave out there. Uh, but, but it seems to me that most of these democracies, including Hungary, that are often labeled illiberal democracies, actually are, are proto-authoritarian. Uh, they're, they're not democracies at all. Uh, that, that, in fact, uh, they, they may come to power in a legitimate democratic election, uh, but very soon start manipulating the system to get rid of press freedoms or to uh, manipulate the electoral process uh, so that certain parties are excluded from participation. Uh, that's what Putin did in Russia, uh, for example. In Poland, the Law and Justice Party seems to be following that program to some extent, making the judiciary uh, partial solely to one party uh, rather than being independent. Uh, so those seem to me uh, regimes that don't deserve any kind of democratic label. They come to power, but they very quickly are, as I said, proto-authoritarianism. Well, but then I think, Bill, that goes back to the question of who the people are. I think a lot of those regimes come to power on an assumption that the real people are of a particular nationality or, or a particular brand of patriot or an ethnic identity. And it's really our people who are ruling and people who aren't 
like us in some way or another because they aren't patriotic enough or they aren't of the right ethnic identity or they have a different political ideology. They're not the people and therefore they don't have a right to rule. Yeah, that's very, so we're, we're back again defining the people right. and these regimes do that. And, right. and of course, unfortunately, we're seeing that even in the United States now and we talked about that earlier. And, and I think it is to some extent a bipartisan problem, but you know, you know, right now, certainly, uh, given the orientation of President Trump, it's very alarming how he seems to regard the people as those people who are his base, uh, who, and, and his, his whole government seems to be organized around pleasing his base and ignoring anyone who he disagrees with. Uh, let's talk about, then, the limits of liberal democracy. I know you, you studied with uh, Benjamin Barber uh, back in the 1980s. He wrote this great book, Strong Democracy, which, by the way, I reread a couple of the chapters of that before our conversation today. And in that book, uh, Barber is criticizing liberal democracy, not from, from the right, as maybe people like Viktor Orban does, but from the left saying uh, this notion that democracy is about defending one's interests and rights is, is too limited that we need to think more broadly about that. Well, you studied with Ben Barber, so, so tell us, what's his strong democracy view? Well, his critique of liberal democracy is that it's thin, that it's thin on democracy, on letting the people participate and have a real say over the things that affect their lives. So He certainly endorses the idea of individual rights, right? He does. And civil liberties and the things that we were just talking about as important for protecting minority rights in a democracy. Right. But Barber believes, as did Madison for that matter, that having rights on a piece of paper isn't enough to defend them, that you can only defend rights if all the people are participating and understanding what's at stake with their rights. And so participation, in his mind, is a way of guaranteeing not only rights, but full, rigorous involvement in the polity and in contributing to good policy to better outcomes. So it's a way of both protecting rights in a strong way and having better government. And also thinking about the political system, not in solely individualistic terms, but thinking about this sort of collective project that democracy is about figuring out what we as a people are going to do right. as a whole, not, you know, what am I getting out of this? Right. right. And that carries with it a strong notion of what deliberation involves. That is that you come together in some fashion, and with large scale it's more difficult, to not only speak your mind and speak your interests, but to listen to the interests of others so that you understand that there are different ideas out there and that if we're going to work together, we need to come to some kind of agreement a compromise or some kind of agreement on what the common good entails. Yeah, and our, our language of liberal democracy that focuses so much on individual rights and interests prevents us from thinking about the polity in those collective terms, right? That, that yeah. what, what we need, you know, that, I mean, that comes up in discussions of taxation, where the attitude is, well, the only thing I care about taxation is limiting how much I am taxed, uh, rather than thinking about taxation as an investment in you know, the collective good. And, and a lot of the collective problems we have in America today are the result of our inability to raise the revenues that would be required in order to accomplish 
you know, public good. When this comes up in, in my public policy classes, I often bring up the example of a local school. Uh, if we think about the taxes that we have to pay to a local school district as simply, well, this is the payment I'm making so that my children can get an education, that's not going to work very well. Uh, first of all, right away, those people who don't have children will say, well, then I don't need to pay taxes for the local school because I have no children. But that's the wrong way to think about uh, the investments in public education. We have to think about, I pay these taxes because public education is a positive good for all of society. And that these children are being educated not in order for each of them to be successful as individuals, but in order to be able to make a contribution to the well-being of, 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 of all of society. Uh, Which in turn is better for me and advance my own interests, end. right, exactly. in the end. You know, and, and certainly in education, that's, uh, and you're so aware of this given your, your background in, in thinking about education and democracy, you know, it's so, so important to society. I was reading, there's a, there's a study by a couple of economists that came out a, a number of years ago and I forget their names at the moment, but they did a study on uh, the sources of economic growth in the United States in the 20th century. And they end up determining, after looking at lots of different variables, that the most significant variable for the economic prosperity of the United States in the 20th century was the high level of education uh, of American citizens. That at the start of the 20th century, Americans were the most educated people in the world. And that made the United States an economic powerhouse. Uh, and that required, you know, investing in that. Uh, and, and, and fortunately, you know, the investments in education have declined over the last few decades. And I think some of our economic troubles right now probably derive from that lack of, of investment. Well, and I would argue that some of our democratic troubles arise from our lack of investment in democratic civic education. After all, the universal public education at the beginning of the 20th century was as much about socializing all of these new immigrants who came from backgrounds that were not democratic necessarily and, and allowing them to understand what it meant to be a part of a constitutional democracy and what it would mean to participate as a full citizen once you came of age. That notion of citizen education is on the decline. We see that the number of civics courses that a student takes in a, in a public school education has gone down to where some students don't get any civic education. Most get one course over the course of their 12 years. And uh, I really worry about that as well. And they don't even have a conception of what a citizen is. And there are other forces in society that do this as well, but people are more apt to describe themselves as consumers or taxpayers, uh, and the notion that they're a citizen, which carries with it all this notion of, you know, I'm participating in this collective project of democracy is falls by the wayside. One book I've read recently is this book by Astra Taylor, uh, with a great title, by the way. I, I love her title. Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. I want to say more about that title in a minute, but uh, one thing that struck me about that book is in her first chapter, and she's a, a millennial, uh, Astra Taylor, she's a young woman, and she mentions in her first chapter that just a few years ago, uh, she never thought much about democracy at all, and she, she described herself as coming up with a kind of a radical background, so that she had positive feelings about things like socialism or racial justice and 
things like that, but she never thought much about democracy. And here's someone who's part of the educated elite. Uh, I think she went to an Ivy League institution. Uh, but even elite Americans don't have that kind of civic background so that they have even been exposed to the idea of, of, of democracy and, and why that might be, be of value. Uh, of course, she now has come around and wrote this kind of very interesting book whose title uh, I find great because it captures so well the notion that democracy is in the end an ideal. Uh, democracy may not exist. Well, it may not exist because no existing society is ever going to meet the, the requirements of democratic rule. I mean, as you said at the beginning, Rick, you know, rule by the people. Uh, simple to say, but difficult, very complicated uh, to, to implement. So, so every democracy is going to have its flaws, but there's great value in whatever democracy we have. And if that erodes, uh, that's a loss. We'll miss it, right? Well, and I would say that there's great value in articulating what a democratic ideal should be as an aspirational ideal. It's kind of like a North Star. We'll never reach it in practice. But to have that ideal by which to compare where we are and to say that this is the ideal, this would be perfectly legitimate way of having rule and of providing for the common good, even if we never get there, so that we know how close we are or how far we are from the ideal. Yeah, I tend to tell my students, think about democracy as being an, an end of a continuum. You know, authoritarianism at one end, democracy at the other end, and you can plot any society, whether it's going one way or the other, and societies do over time, and you can identify different countries and place them at a different place in the continuum and make comparisons. And that's a, that's a valuable exercise. So if we look at America today, we've already raised some issues about ways in which our democracy might be uh, under threat nowadays. Uh, what are some of the things that we would want to worry about in terms of America falling short of a democratic ideal in, uh, in 2019 as we sit here talking about democracy? Well, I think the actual numbers of participants in one of the easiest democratic acts in elections is a concern. And the fact that younger people vote and participate in those kinds of easy democratic acts at, at a lower rate than their elders is a concern. When you have, um, we just got uh, results nationwide of a, of a study of college student voting. And while college students in the year 2018 voted at a double the rate that they had voted in 2014, a similar off-year election, it was still 39%. So that just tells us that the 2014 election was abysmal in terms of young people's voting or, or traditional college-age students voting. So that's one marker it, when you have the younger generations not participating in what is arguably the easiest democratic act. That's a concern. I think that when people don't really care as much about democratic values or norms, when people think, well, I don't have to listen to the other side. I can watch Fox News or MSNBC, and that's enough. I don't have to hear other people's ideas. I can just listen to my own echo chamber, and that will allow me to get by. Then you've lost that notion that we're in this together, we have to work together. We may not like each other, but we have to work together to achieve a, a public good or common goods. Yeah, and those failures, though, also are 
are to some degree determined also by institutional structures, right? When we think about voting, uh, in the United States, voting, as you say, it's the easiest political act, but it is not that easy. We have you know, national elections on a Tuesday where most people have to go to their place of employment, they have to work all day, and then you know, rush to the voting site uh, after work. Uh, and there, they're apt to find a long line, may have to stand in the rain uh, to get in and vote. Uh, if they registered 30 it, days before. If they right? registered 30 days before, you know, that, that certainly, you know, undermines uh, the ability of people to exercise their electoral franchise. You know, c- certainly it would help if we had voting on a holiday. We could make Election Day a holiday or, or schedule elections on, say, a Saturday. I think Election Day is a holiday is the better option because it indicates the significance of the election for society and, uh, you know, have people uh, not have to work. In addition, we're the only um, advanced industrial democracy where it's on the onus is on the individual to register to vote, to sign up. All other democracies, at least, that we like to compare ourselves to automatically register people to vote. And that fact itself also opens up all kinds of opportunities for voter suppression. That is, you can manipulate the registration process to prevent some people from qualifying uh, and denying them uh, to vote. And of course, you can suppress the vote also by just simply increasing the inconvenience of the vote. Just in recent years, we've heard stories about uh, you know, voting sites being closed down or being moved and people not knowing where they're supposed to go to vote. You know, luckily, in most states, you can often go to a website or something and find out where you're supposed to vote. But some people don't know necessarily that they can do that. And so, so there, there, there's those constraints. Um, and I think the choices that people have when they go to vote doesn't make it any easier because uh, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, I'm voting for the lesser of two evils. Uh, there, our party system, our electoral system doesn't really allow a range of choice so that a voter believes that her or his choice really corresponds with their ideas, their interests. And that makes it harder to argue that this is a a real meaningful act. And we also have plurality winner elections, by and large, Uh, single districts and the person who wins is wins only needs a plurality to win. That's why I like things like ranked choice voting, which addresses the problem you just mentioned. Uh, ranked choice voting is, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that, is a system where uh, when the voter goes to vote, the voter doesn't simply vote for a single person, but arrays the various candidates in a list, uh, depending on how many people are running for a particular office. Uh, and then as the votes are counted, the person at the bottom of the list who has the fewest votes, that person is eliminated and uh, his or her votes are distributed to, for those voters who voted that person first, their votes go to the second person on their list. It's it's actually a quite simple uh, process, but what that does, it allows more candidates to run, but in the end, uh, once you go through all uh, providing people an opportunity for their second votes and third choice votes to be counted, the ultimate winner has a majority of the votes. Uh, and that, that seems to me a much better system. And, and it's being started uh, some places. They're doing that in Maine now. And uh, I just read an article in New York City might start 
doing that in 2021. So. Well, it's also it's also reflective of, of this idea, and I think this is consistent with a lot of more participatory or deliberative Democrats that oftentimes the the people's choice is a second order preference that. I may speak the loudest for my for something that is in my particular interest, but then if I think about it and I hear others, I can think, well, while this is my top choice in terms of what would advance my individual interest, maybe uh, I can live with something that advances my interest somewhat, but other people can can be included. And that's better for the polity, for the government, if my first choice doesn't win because I'm just advancing my crass personal interests. My second-order preference or third-order preference might advance the interests of more people. That's the deliberative democracy uh, thing. There, just recently uh, in Texas, uh, J James Fishkin, who's a professor at Yale, and Larry Diamond, who's a professor at Stanford, organized a project. And I think Jane Mansbridge as well, right? She's at Harvard. The three of them organized this deliberative democracy project uh, where they brought uh, 200 and some Americans that had been chosen randomly. Uh, and they were all uh, brought to a big hotel in Dallas, Texas, I think. And they were wined and dined and uh, engaged in democratic deliberation on a number of issues. And uh, uh, the New York Times has had some good coverage of this uh, experiment, which I was delighted with. And according to the New York Times, they took polls of people's attitudes before and after, and there was actually some movement. Uh, people didn't abandon their preconceived notions altogether, uh, but there was some movement after getting together and actually discussing and deliberating over a course of a couple of days, uh, looking at specific issues. And uh, so somehow we could uh, organize uh, something like that in a, in a large scale, it would be great. Let's talk a little bit about uh, democracy's critics. Um, I was thinking about this, you know, walking over. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were these democratic critics, uh, people like Roberto Michels, uh, the guy who came up with the idea of the iron law of oligarchy, and, and there's a guy, Gaetano Mosca, and, and the like. Their critique of democracy was that democracy was a sham, that in any kind of democratic society, actually, there'd be some kind of elite uh, that would uh, really run things, and that democracy would simply be a, a game where people would think they were participated or, or their concerns would be uh, paid attention to, but, but they really wouldn't. Uh, so elite rule was inevitable, and that democracy simply could never work for that purpose. More recent critics have adopted a, a different tact, and one actually is maybe rooted sort of in ancient traditions, it goes back to Plato, that says the problem with democracy is not that it's a sham, but that uh, people are just unfit to rule themselves. They're not competent enough. Uh, that we ought to, we'd be better off if we had a rule by a knowledgeable elite. Okay, and there's a very, actually, a, a, a book that's become kind of popular by a philosopher named Jason Brennan called Against Democracy that makes that argument. So, so what can we say about that? Uh, as you yourself said, Rick, there is an issue about competence, right? Uh, people don't get adequate civic education. They don't pay enough attention to politics. We do, we do need to concern, be concerned that people perhaps are not as knowledgeable uh, as we would like them to be to be good citizens. Uh, but does that mean we need to give up on democracy altogether, hand over things to an elite? 
Well, I don't think so, Bill. Um, and, and that brings another definitional question. When we think about democracy, the rule of the people, requiring not only understanding of who the people are, but what kind of capacity the people have to rule, uh, it raises the question of what constitutes capacity. Uh, my problem with Brennan and others is that they have only one measure of capacity, and that is knowledge. If you don't know certain things, then you're not capable of ruling. Well, I would argue that there are a whole... It's a certain kind of knowledge and it's well. a, Yes, it's, it's a, a certain no, kind of It's a knowledge of... Uh, what is what is the of kind of policy expertise? Right, right. right. When he talks about trade policy in his book, he says, "Well, the problem is people don't understand the law of comparative advantage." Right, <laughs> you know, from Ricardo. So, so you uh, have to know that and be in order to make or a to be a good voter. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just don't accept that because I think that if we believe in the inherent capacity of people to be able to listen to arguments and judge what is best either for themselves or for the polity, there are other things than just knowledge that go into that. And I think people are capable of making those decisions. Uh, I often um, ask students who raise questions about the people's capacity and understood as the people don't know how many Supreme Court justices there are. They don't know what's in the uh, Sixth Amendment or those kinds of knowledge questions that often are used to trip people up or on a late night show you you go on the street and ask people and they know nothing right and they're they're just ignorant uh, citizens we don't want to be ruled by them uh, I asked them um, if uh, a person uh, if a union member decides that what the union tells him or her is best for her as a worker and they vote on that, does that mean that they're not knowledgeable? Um, and so I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of measures of what constitutes the capacity for making decisions that go beyond knowledge. Yeah, like partisanship can, right. be, a, can be a useful cue. If you know that based upon your life experience that, that one part or the other seems to back policies that are more favorable to you and people like you, and say, okay, well then I'm going to vote on the basis of, you know, the partisan label uh, of somebody. Uh, that's not being irrational. That's being sort of sensible about, you know, where where are the things that I want to have have happen in in the in the system are, are they going to happen? Uh, and it's going to be this party, not that party, that's going to uh, bring that about. Or, or similarly, if I have been disappointed by what I thought was the party that was advancing my interest, and someone comes along and says, well, really, you haven't been served by that party at all. You need to change horses and, uh, and go with this party because this other party hasn't done what they said they were going to do for you. You know, and I've thought about this a lot in terms of, you know, trade policy, that uh, a lot of the, the advocates of sort of more elitist democracy will say, well, people don't understand how trade works and how actually, you know, globalization is really going to help everybody. It's going to make people wealthier. And, and again, they bring up things like comparative advantage. And, you know, in, in recent years, there's been a lot of anti-trade feeling in the country uh, from those people who uh, saw themselves as harmed by things like NAFTA and more globalization. Uh, and those people were often ignored. And Donald Trump, to his credit, perceived in 2016 that uh, that was a voting block out there. And that if he went out and talked about how 
uh, trade was not helping people. There are a lot of people who saw themselves as, as being harmed by trade. Uh, and even though the trade theorists say, well, if everybody is made better by free trade, then the winners can compensate the losers, right? That's what the economics textbook says. But the reality has been, as globalization has expanded over the last couple of decades, the losers haven't been compensated. They've seen the factories that they used to work in close down. They've seen their communities uh, devastated because jobs have moved abroad. And there has been no action on the part of government to uh, come in and help them in any way. Uh, even simple things like providing uh, some transitional assistance so they might find a job maybe in another region and, and awaited to, to find that job and, and the like. So those people have a knowledge about trade that the trade experts don't have, right? And in a democracy, uh, I think those people were right to vote for Trump <laughs> in a way, that the election outcome in which the one person who is the strongest out there criticizing you know, trade policies gains votes is a democratic outcome. It suddenly informed us that you know, there, there are some real, real problems there, and it, it has made a difference. That's how democracy works. Right. And from the perspective of democracy, it bothers me that people who don't like the outcome of the last election will blame those voters because they were ignorant. They didn't understand what was the better outcome. And I, I just think that's wrong. I think they, you're right, they voted based on their experiential information, based on their lives and what had happened to those lives as a result of trade policy. And even if some of the fears might be uh, exaggerated, or I mean, th I think about that in terms of immigration, which was Trump's other big issue, fear of immigrants, uh, oftentimes a fear that uh, is not really connected to experience in this case. We know that the biggest opposition to immigration into the country are in those parts of the country where there are the fewest immigrants. You know, but that anxiety is there and people are acting on behalf of it. And it's not ignorance. One shouldn't dismiss those views as, as ignorant. But in fact, in a democracy, you need to take into account those anxieties and figure out a way to address that. And that's only going to happen if they have a chance to, to have their say. And the response isn't to ignore them or to dismiss them or override them, but in fact, uh, figure out some policy that in fact is going to respond to their concerns, as well as uh, make it possible for, I mean, I believe that uh, immigrants are a great contributor to American life. Uh, I'm pro-immigration in that sense, but uh, I can understand that if we're going to have a successful immigration regime, we've got to assuage the, the people who might see a cultural threat uh, from that immigration. Well, in a robust democracy, those who are trying to manipulate those concerns and fears uh, by advancing uh, ideas that really are potentially dangerous to counter them and to, and to make an argument as to why that is, that is wrong why immigration is a net positive and we ought to advance representatives who will make a policy that's both rational and advancing of more inclusion, more immigration. So, you know, democracy involves a lot of work. It's, it's not like it just happens, you know, and it's something that, you know, we as a polity need to, to, to work, work on. We should start winding up here. Um, could go on for another hour or so, Rick, I guess, talking about this very fascinating subject of democracy. 
I've been thinking lately also about passion in democracy, that the democracy is hard work, but if you're going to work hard at something, you have to have a passion for it. And uh, I was listening to a, another podcast recently with uh, Danielle Allen, the political philosopher from uh, Harvard, and uh, she described herself as a lover of democracy. And I thought about that. I said, well, well me too. You know, and Rick, I'm sure you love democracy as well. And, I, and our production assistant who's working here, Reagan Wind, I bet she loves democracy as well. So, and, and that's important, right? And we have to have a passion. If democracy is going to succeed, we have to somehow foster the, a passion for democracy. You agree with that? I do. And that does raise the question of whether passion in politics is a good thing or not. But I really do believe that you have to love democracy as a process and as a promise of outcomes that are going to be better, which requires some degree of faith, of course. But it's not easy because when you're loving a process, uh, there are people who will get tired of endless process. Uh, I remember uh, a, a big slogan of the Students for a Democratic Society in the 1960s was, freedom is an endless meeting. Uh, and and uh, I don't know that endless meetings are something to be passionate about. But, but it also has to do with the love of your fellow citizens because democracy involves coming together and seeing that coming together and deliberating and making decisions is a good thing. It, it is a, an end in itself, not just for the outcome of protecting my interests or getting better policy. And so the passion has to also include passion for being with one's fellow citizens. And that's that's been something that I also worry about, that people would rather just watch Netflix than go out and engage with their fellow citizens on a matter of serious concern. Right. And if I love my fellow citizens and they love me, I won't be all that worried if I'm in the minority, right? I can trust those people that are in the majority, and uh, I can, and I can also argue with them, you know. And they won't trample on my rights. Right. Yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, maybe that's a good place to end. Love. All right. Thanks so much, Rick. Uh, I found this conversation very interesting, and look forward to continuing it in the days and years to come. So thanks so much for being here, Rick. Uh, appreciate it, and we'll have you back again to talk about uh, things related to democracy and other things. And thanks again to Beyond the Newsfeeds production assistant, Reagan Wind, who's done a marvelous job of recording us today. She's the class of 2020, and so she's a third of the way through her senior year. And we continue to be grateful to Joe Carr and the staff of the Marketing and Communications Department for their help. And most of all, many thanks to our listeners. Please tell four friends to subscribe to Beyond Your News Feed wherever they get their podcast. Thanks. <laughs>